episode uh, I want to introduce myself my name is Keith Hall I'm a board certified emergency physician I've been practicing now for about 15 years and making a YouTube and possibly a podcast is something that I've been interested in doing for some time just thinking about talking about medical issues that are in the news frequent questions that come up uh, related to different medical topics and situations that people may end up in um and just explaining them in a way that people can understand and also giving some historical context to some of these issues and how we got where we are today ultimately i love to take people's questions and start a virtual conversation and do some interviews with uh some experts as well so just stick with us we're gonna have a lot of fun we'll laugh along the way and hopefully we learn a lot. So one of the things that um, our current approach to this COVID situation has uh, led me to is um, just thinking about isolation and loneliness. And it got me thinking about being isolated. And one of the places where isolation occurs a lot is in prison. I mean, that's one of the things that we learn about in popular culture in the United States that I'm going to talk about in a little bit. But just to give a little bit of context, one out of 11 males in the United States have been locked up at some point in their life. Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty astonishing when you think about it. One out of 11, that's like essentially 10% of males in the United States. Um, just to give some context, um, the United States only has 5% of the world's population, but we have 22% of the world's prisoner population. That means we have an astonishing disproportionate number of prisoners. I guess that explains why I feel we're sort of enamored with prison culture from TV shows to movies to music. And with all that inundation of prison culture and American culture, I think we've all kind of thought about what it would be like to be in jail or imprisoned at some point. I know I've imagined and thought about it. Um, and when I've thought about it in the past, before this COVID crisis, I thought, well, if I was in jail or in prison, it'd be a, you know, it'd be a crappy situation. I mean, it'd be a little more than crappy. That's kind of an understatement, but I can handle it. Um, you know, if I was end up in jail on some trumped up charges or something, you know, if, if in fact I could be locked up with some people who were pretty reasonable. But the thing is, when you're in prison or in jail, I'm pretty sure that you're not going to be locked up with the most reasonable people. Um, so, you know, what I've kind of reasoned in my mind is that if I did end up in that situation, what I'll try to do is get up, you know, in lockdown or get isolated, get put in isolation on purpose so I can be by myself. Um, but this COVID pseudo quarantine that we're doing has really made me rethink that. It's made me really realize why when someone violates the rules of prison, they put them in isolation, despite the fact that even when you're in the general population, you could potentially be shanked for the most minuscule of offenses or perceived offenses. 
uh, towards the other prisoners. And there's a reason that they use isolation as a punishment uh, because people don't want to be isolated. Humans need social interaction. We've had so much discussion in our general conversation and in the media about social media and how it's kind of the end of socialization, people talking to each other and enjoying each other's company. But it turns out that despite all the technological advancements and changes that we've had in our communication standards, that we still need each other. We still crave to be around each other. Um, and it's just a basic animalistic primitive brain type function of being a human so if it's so hard and so torturous for us to be isolated from one another to be separated and socially distancing from each other why are we doing this what is the purpose where did all this thought come from well, it's important for us to do this, um, to flatten the curve, which is something I'll touch on a little bit more in a different episode. The reasoning behind this really boils down to something called the R-naught. Um, it's a scientific principle in epidemiology and in infectious disease that is the foundation behind how many people does one person infect when it comes to an infectious disease. So for communicable infectious disease, the R naught is the number of persons that each person that has that infectious communicable disease will infect. And that really just determines the slope of the exponential growth curve of a virus if left unchecked. So if you imagine a community of persons, it only takes one person with the communicable infectious disease to start to spread the disease from one person to the next. Uh, but once that cat is completely out of the bag, uh, it's kind of a lost cause and it's, com you know, to completely stop the spread of disease without some dr really super draconian measures, which I'll talk about more in another episode as well. And my thoughts about why we are not going to do what it takes um, to completely put this cat back in the bag. I know when you talk about like one person affecting one person or one person affecting two persons. Um, as is the case with COVID-19. It doesn't sound like a lot, but um, one of the things that I want to point out when you try to imagine and try to understand exponential growth curves is the example of the one doubling every day problem. I'm sure this is something you probably heard of where there's this illustration of one penny doubled every day for 31 days. And at the end of those 31 days, you surprisingly end up with like $10 million. Well, that's just a great illustration of exponential growth. And that's exactly how our virus spreads. There's like a flat initial growth that is almost imperceptible. And then there's an inflection point, which leads to this tremendous growth. And uh, left unchecked, that's exactly what we would see. So how do we know that these were the measures that need to be taken? How was there already a playbook for this? I mean, it's hard to believe now, but at one point in time, uh, we as people did not even know what even caused disease. I mean, there were all sorts of beliefs about what caused disease. And the most preeminent one uh, was something called miasma theory. Uh, miasma is a Greek word literally meaning a foul smell or odor. That's why during the um, Black 
plague. Probably you've seen this. It's really strange looking creepy mask that doctors wore. They're called plague masks now. That's what people usually call them. Um, I mean, could you imagine a doctor approaching you with this? You know, you're delirious with a fever with a mask like this. You'd be like, what the? But my asthma theory didn't. It didn't even acknowledge that disease could be spread from one person to a, another. It was focused on a person's hygiene and the environment and the vapors, quote unquote, that could be coming from that environment. Uh, I imagine that the correlation of the stench and sewage and the increased numbers of diseases led to the miasma theory. Uh, it's just one of the fallacies of man that, you know, it comes to thinking that correlation equals causation. So I imagine they went into the slums or the ghettos and they noticed there were a lot more disease there. And I'm sure there were a lot more people. The people were more crowded together. They made sewage. So it probably stunk. And they were like, oh, well, this is where the stench must be what causes disease. But um, again, there's a fallacy of just correlation and causation just because. You know, there's a correlation doesn't mean there's causation. Uh, correlation usually is just a start of where an investigation can begin. Uh, it's not really science until you can prove that there's causation um, on top of that correlation. So ultimately, miasma theory fell out of favor as the germ theory of disease. Uh, but that, you know, came to the forefront and uh, eventually proved itself to be the cause of disease, but it took a lot of time. I mean, it was a tremendous amount of time between the initial discovery of germ theory and 400 BC, before Christ, 400 BC. There was a Greek historian that observed that diseases could be spread from one person to another, um, but it wasn't until the 1800s. Think about that. Two, over 2,000 years before germ theory was actually accepted, when John Snow... English physician, not the Jon Snow from Game of Thrones, uh, wrote it with a clear understanding of person-to-person -person transmission of disease and one acceptance of germ theory through um, the issuance of the first Boil Water Advisory in London. This is during like a cholera outbreak in London. Um, and that led to the squelching of that cholera epidemic and the public acceptance of germ theory over 2,000 years from the first proposal of germ theory. Well, that's it for today, guys. Um, I just wanted to give a little quick take on that. And, um, you know, this is the very first one. I'm pretty sure to be a little bit choppy, a little bit rough. Uh, but uh, the waters will smooth out over time as you get more experience. And I hope you tune in for the next.